For those of you who don't know me, my name's Alex Richardson, one of the staff members here at Rich Hill Presbyterian Church. Let's pray once more as we come to God's word. Father, we really need your help to understand your word and for us to be changed. Holy Spirit, come, minister to our hearts, teach us something of the gospel, challenge us and change us, not for our own glory, but for yours. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we come to some really famous words. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Do unto others what you would have them do to you. Powerful words. I wonder what thoughts and feelings you have when you hear those words. I wonder what you make of those words. I wonder how you interpret those words for your life. There's a scene in the two Ronnies um, where a man comes in uh, to the shopkeeper and he asks for four candles. Um, you may be familiar with this. And the shopkeeper, he goes and he gets four candles. Um, he sets them on the, on the counter. And the man replies, why did you get me those? Well, I didn't want four candles. I wanted a, a, a pitchfork handle. Um, to which then the shopkeeper goes and gets a pitchfork handle, four candles. And the scene goes on. And the, uh, the man asks for plugs, um, to which the shopkeeper goes and gets sink plugs. He, he sets them down in front of the man and he says, I want a 13 amp. Um, obviously, he wasn't looking um, for, for sink plugs. It's really easy to misunderstand words at times, isn't it? And with these really famous words in Matthew 7, 7 to 12, the same can apply Power, that's what Jesus is talking about here. If I ask for a promotion, it will be given to me. A spouse, if I seek for a spouse, I'll definitely find one. Money, if I knock on my boss's door and I ask for a promotion, that's what will be given to me. Is that what Jesus is really getting at in this passage? with these words? Well, to understand what Jesus is really saying, we must understand the context. And the context in which these words have been written and spoken is one of glory and righteousness. Jesus begins this sermon with the Beatitudes. It's describing the heart of a true believer, what a true member of God looks like, what their heart looks like. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. The list goes on. But this is what a disciple looks like. This is what the heart of a true disciple looks like. And because their heart looks like this, they are to be different from the world. You and I, we're to be different from the world. 
We're to be the salt and light of the earth. Chapter 5, verse 16 gives, gives the reason for this distinction, for this living differently. It's so that our light will shine before others, that people will see how we live, and they will give glory to our Father in heaven. The reason you're distinct, the reason you've been saved, the reason you've been sanctified is not for you to look glorious, but it's so your Father in heaven might look glorious. It's not for people to look at us and say, hey, look how good you are. It's so that they might bring glory to our Father. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing that we've been restored back to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ to bring glory to him. But as wonderful as it is, it's a tall order. He goes on to give what this restored life looks like. And he says we have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. It's not just the outside being clean. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were concerned with external cleanliness, with the outside being clean. But Jesus says it's the whole person. It's the inside as well as the outside. The glass, it's the inside and the outside. The whole person has to be clean. And Jesus spends the bulk of this sermon explaining what this looks like, what this means. And we learn it's not easy. It's an exceeding righteousness. He says when it comes to faithfulness in marriage, when it comes to faithfulness in your words, it's not just the outside, but it's the inside that has to be faithful as well. When it comes to loving others, it's not just the outside, but it's the inside. When it comes to anger, It's not just the outside, we're to have peace on the inside as well. We're not to lust. When it comes to money, we can't serve two masters. We can't serve both God and money. Jesus says when it comes to fasting, when it comes to praying, we do those things in a way that we're unseen and for the right motivations. He says when it comes to judging other people, we don't do it unfairly. We treat them as human beings made in God's image. We're not to be harsh. We're not to be condemning. That's the, the deeper righteousness that Jesus has been calling us to, that he's been unpacking for us. And we've been looking at this for some time now. And I don't know about you, but it seems like a tall order. There's a lot of responsibility. Be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Be holy like your Father in heaven. If that's what a true disciple looks like, where does that leave us? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You can read the Sermon of the Mount, I believe, in two ways. You can read it, you can despair, you can feel guilty and condemned. Or you can read it and hear it in the way that Jesus wants you to read it and hear it. 
And that's with great hope. Jesus uses this phrase throughout this sermon. It's a phrase that is meant to give us confidence and hope and assurance. What's the phrase? Your father. 16 times Jesus says, your father. In the midst of this high bar calling and in the midst of this righteous living, he keeps saying, your father. And he he does so in, in a personal way to remind us of our position in the universe. Your father in heaven, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the one who knows all things, the one who rules perfectly in justice and in love, the one who knows what you need before you know what you need, the one who can care for you better than you can care for yourself. He is the one we're to look to. Jesus says in the midst of this high calling, don't worry. You have a father in heaven. He's the one that's called you to this. And it's his job to look after you. It's his job to care for you. I remember my my dad saying to me one time, Son, your granda is a Richardson. My surname is Richardson. What's yours? It's kind of like, is that a trick question? Uh, Richardson, am I right? Yes, act like it. Act like you're a Richardson. Now, we see when you're a child, that's, that's fairly high bar to, to act like a parent, to, to live up to the surname, act like a Richardson. But honestly, as I look back on my childhood, my mom and dad, they, they loved me. They cared for me, they fed me, they clothed me, you'll be pleased to know. They, they gave me what I needed and things that I thought that I needed that they knew weren't good for me, they didn't give to me. You're a Richardson, boom, high bar, high calling, exceeding righteousness. But there was nothing but grace and love and care in the midst of that high calling. Now think about that as followers of Jesus. It's the job of the God of the universe to look after you and me. Yes, it's it's a high calling. Yes, it's exceeding righteousness. But breathe. Your Father in heaven knows you. He loves you. He gave his son to die for you. He's given us his spirit that dwells in us to change us. He knows what we need. And that's unbelievable news because sometimes I feel like this righteousness, more often than not, is incredibly hard. What's some of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, loving. Rachel asks me to do the dishes. I want to watch TV. Don't love well. Joy. I lose my phone or my wallet. It's meltdown. Peace. Someone... Zooms up the north way, using the wrong lane, they cut in in front of you, they don't even use indicators. They don't, I'm, I'm not at peace with them. They're my enemy. Patience, Rachel, why is my football kit not ready? <laughs> it feels at times like this greater righteousness is slipping, doesn't it? 
And Jesus' point here is to say, it's not your sole responsibility to bring change, to live this way. Your father knows what you need. He's called you, he saved you. Your job is to ask, to seek, and to knock. That's what we're told this morning in these verses. We're to pray to him. We're to ask, we're to seek, and we're to knock. We're gonna ask three questions from this passage. What do we pray for? Why do we pray for what we do? And how are we to pray? We're gonna think about the first one for only 30 seconds before we think about the other two for a wee bit longer. What do we pray for? Well, given what we've already said, we're not to be asking for whatever we want. Jesus has already laid out in the the Sermon on the Mount what we're to be asking for. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. One author puts it like this. The asking and seeking is for wisdom to properly follow what Jesus has laid out. We're to ask, we're to seek for wisdom to fulfill this righteousness that he's called us to or to pursue the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, how do we pray? Well, we're to pray confidently remembering our position. Jesus doesn't want us to be, to be scared. He doesn't want us to be timid. He wants us to, to approach God with boldness, with confidence. What does it say? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus wants us to approach him with confidence. And then the image he gives here, it's kind of like a child in a house. Do you know, I know from childhood and parents, I'm sure you know as well, children are, are so needy. I'm sorry, children, but you're incredibly needy. You might not like your parents at times, but, but you do need them. What do, what do children do when they're needy? They ask, and they ask, and they ask, mommy, mommy, mommy. But if the parent isn't in the room, what, what do they do? They seek, and they seek, and they seek, until they find their parent, mommy, mommy, mommy. And you know if a parent's in a closed room, uh, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with this, you're in the bathroom, child comes, knocking, 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 mommy, mommy, mommy. They ask, they seek, they knock. And they do it with such confidence. They do it with confidence because they're asking their mother or their father. They have a confidence, a trust in their mom or their dad. And Jesus is saying here that we're to ask, we're to seek, we're to knock. Why? Because we're asking our Father in heaven. He will answer our prayers. When we seek him, we will find him. The door will be open to us. We're to ask with a confidence that he will answer. Jesus wants us to have this rock solid assurance that God will answer our prayers. 
Tim Keller says, we ought not to be scared or timid in prayer. Sometimes we can worry, are we saying the right thing? Is our theology correct? Is God really there listening to me? Well, Jesus puts it beyond doubt that God wants us to ask, seek, and knock. He's there and he loves to hear from us. He wants us to pursue him day and night and to do it with confidence. There's balance to this as well. Is Jesus saying here that if we ask with confidence, we can get anything that we want? Well, James, James 4 verse 3 kind of addresses this. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Kind of seems like James is, is contradicting Jesus here. He's kind of saying the opposite to what Jesus is saying. But James's point is that you ask with the wrong motives. You don't ask with the kingdom of heaven in mind. And because you ask with the wrong motives, you don't get. You don't get what you want. Tim Keller again says, there's a huge difference, a huge difference between praying my will be done and thy will be done. There's a huge difference. I'm sure we're all familiar with that, that scene in The Lion King where Mephasa says to Simba, Simba, remember who you are. That's my best impression of Mephasa, sorry. Simba, remember who you are. Remember your position. As followers of Jesus, when it comes to prayer, we're to remember our position. We're to remember who we are. And Jesus has already talked about this in Matthew 6. Louisa alluded to it earlier. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, glorified be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, so often we can play the role of judge, determining what's, what's good for us, what we need, even determining what others need. But Jesus says here, that's God's rule. That's God's rule. We're to remember our position. And who, and who else to look to but Jesus? If you read the Gospels, Jesus over and over again, I come not to do the will, to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father. Father, not my will, but your will. Over and over again, Jesus, he's concerned with his Father's will. He's the one we're to look to if we're to remember our position. We pray confidently whilst remembering our position. Why do we pray? This is the third question. Well, we pray because we're needy and he's our Father in heaven. It should be obvious, but we pray, we ask because we're people in need. We don't ask for things that, that we already have. It's a fairly simple logic. 
I think one of the things that, that Satan tries to do to discourage you and I, to discourage our, our unity, is to, is to make us think that, that we're meant to be perfect already and that other Christians are meant to be perfect as well. We sin, oh, what do we say? I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I gave in to that. We, we, may not, we, we, we may not say it, but, but we can sometimes think that I'm meant to be perfect. I'm not meant to sin. I'm meant to be better than that. And that's true, but we're not meant to be perfect. And there's kind of this disbelief, this denial that we give in to sin once again. Or if we think about it with others, and I would love to say I'm free from this, but, I, but I'm not. Did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear what they did? They claim to be saved. They claim to be a Christian. And yet, they're doing that. We, we demand this perfection from, from, from ourselves and, and from one another. And we, we forget about the, the plank in our own eye. We thought about that last week. And I think what, what Jesus is saying by commanding us to ask, to seek, and to knock is that none of us, not one of us, are perfect yet. There is sanctification to be done. There is change to happen. Philippians 1 verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ is not here yet. And although the work has begun, there's still change to happen. There's growth that needs to take place. And Jesus knows this. And that's why he invites us to ask, to seek, and to knock. Because we're in need. Second thing is because he's our father in heaven. When you're up against it, when you're facing things that you never thought you would face, when your life is not working out according to your plan, why do you run to your Father in heaven? Or when things are good, when life is going well, when there's a lot of goodness, when you're tasting God's blessing, why do you run to God? Why do you pray when it's bad or when it's good? Well, we do that because we have a confidence in the reality that he is our father. And Jesus, he uses this lesser to greater argument here. He compares earthly fathers to, to our heavenly father. And one thing I've learned from, from childhood, one thing I've, I've learned from working in church, from working in church, even in, in Philadelphia for a short period of time, from chatting to missionaries and different people from all over the world, is that parents have this one thing in common. They have this one thing in common. They want what's best for their child. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. He asks two questions. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, 
will give him a snake. Of course you're not going to do that. Of course, you want what's best for your child. You're not going to give them a stone or a snake. You know, parents, they want what's best and they, they know what's best for us. My parents knew that knife play wasn't good for me growing up. They knew that I shouldn't go to the cleaning cupboard and lift that pink bottle and drink it called bleach. They knew that. They knew what food I needed at, at the right age. Six months, I wasn't eating mince and potatoes. They knew what food, or they knew what clothes I needed to wear at the right age. I wasn't wearing clothes for a 16-year-old when I was 16 months. They, they wanted what's best for me. They knew what's best for me. And the point that Jesus is making here is that if you give good gifts to your children, if parents do that, if earthly fathers do that, how much more will your father in heaven be good to you? The creator, the sustainer of all things, the one who knows you, the one who knows what you need before you even know what you need, the one who cares for you perfectly, the one who has rescued you from your sin by sending his son to die for you. He is the one we're praying to. And he knows what we need. And he's going to be good to us in ways that are even better than our earthly parents can be good to us. That's why we run to him in the good and the bad because he knows what we need and he promises it to us in his word. Finally, we, we come to, to verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Well, we have that word so or in other translations it's therefore at the very start. And what that means is Jesus is, is looking back on everything he's taught on the Sermon on the Mount. And he puts it like this. He puts it in a positive way. He says, if you like being loved, if you like being honored, if you like being told the truth, then love. Show honor to others. Tell the truth to others. Now, I think we must be really careful with how we understand this. We could hear this as, well, if I be good to others, they'll be good to me. And that's not the reason. That's not our motivation. Jesus says the reason, the motivation for, for loving people well is because this is the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus, he's been describing what, what the kingdom looks like what it means to be a kingdom follower. And he says, this loving attitude, which conforms to the kingdom of God, when we practice that, it is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It's the perfection demanded in chapter 5, 48, and 6, 33. And we must be careful not to miss the significance of this for two reasons. First, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees later on in Matthew, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. 
He's asked by Pharisees. He's asked by a lawyer. It's never good when, when a lawyer comes to, to ask questions. But he asks him, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? The, the Pharisees, they're obsessed with the law. And they, they wanted to trick or trap Jesus into saying the wrong answer. And Jesus says, the first commandment, the first greatest commandment, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. He says the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying it's a, it's a kind of be nice to people, a generic let's, let's, let's like people, let's be nice people. No, he's saying this is fundamentally the way the people of God are to act. It's the law and the prophets in one. I think we must be careful how we interpret this. We live in a world of individualism, consumerism. We live in the I world, the self world. It's all about us getting consumerism. And there's a danger that we could interpret this as we must clean up on our acts, us and Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. I must love Jesus better. And there's a danger that when we think like that in our individualism, that we forget that it's about loving other people, that we're to love our neighbor as well. And that's a real danger because in thinking it's just about us and Jesus, we actually become like the Pharisees, the people that Jesus doesn't want us to become. And in our consumerist world, coupled with that individualism, we can say, if we read, if we study, if we listen to lots and lots of sermons, I'll be able to clean up my relationship with Jesus. But the reason we're to do all of that great stuff, the reason we're to study, the reason we're to listen to sermons, the reason we get plugged into growth groups, men's, women's ministry, is so that we might be propelled to love others, to love our neighbor, to love our family better, to love that friend who we're struggling with. And sometimes we, we can think that this love your neighbor, it's kind of Jesus just in the gospels. But it's interesting that Paul in Galatians 5 to 13, 14 says, you my brothers and sisters were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, all about theology, all about rich doctrine, all about the gospel. Galatians is all about what is the gospel. It's a correct understanding of the gospel. And at the end of Galatians, he says, a correct understanding of the gospel leads to you loving your neighbor as yourself. I wonder, is that how we think about Sunday mornings? Is that how we think about sermons, growth groups, even conversations after church, men's and women's ministry? Is that how we think about them? The second thing, and it's related, when you hear the word ministry, what are the, the pictures, the concepts, what are the things that come into your mind? 
Do you think of programs, church events, organized schedules, meeting in certain locations? What are the things that come into your mind when you hear the word ministry? This may sound surprising, but I'm deeply persuaded that an unbiblical perspective of ministry deeply weakens the church of Jesus Christ. In everything, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. That's not something you can simply jump into on a Tuesday night, on a Friday night, or a Sunday morning. That's a way of life that Jesus is describing. And Philippians 2 makes this clear. Paul says, Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. That is a picture of ministry that Paul's describing. It's like lights in the sky. Christ collects his people. He lights them with his grace and he casts them back into society, back into culture so that everywhere you look, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is seen. That's ministry. Do I remember going to Romania for the first time, Project Romania? And if you've ever been, you'll know what I'm talking about really well. At nighttime, um, we, we would go outside, we would get onto the trampoline, you, you lie out in the trampoline, and you just, you, you look up. You look up, and all you can see is stars in the sky. Every direction you look, all you can see is stars in the sky. That's ministry. That's what ministry is. God in his grace and his sovereign plan scatters his people everywhere so that light is seen. So that in the hospitals, light is seen. In the lawyer's office, light is seen. In the play park, light is seen. In the university library, light is seen. In the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, light is seen so that you couldn't be part of the wider community without being exposed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's ministry. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. I wonder, is that how you think about ministry? Is that how you think about life? I wonder how you're getting on with loving your neighbor. When you come to Bible study, are you praying? Are you asking, Father, change me, teach me, so I would be the hands and feet of your son, Jesus? May I encourage you this morning, if you feel the weight of that, like I do, run to your Father in prayer. Ask Seek and knock. He's not only willing, but he's able to help us. We've thought about a lot this morning. I pray that the Lord would use his word to change us so that we would live for his glory. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to prayer, to be able to talk to you, to share the desires of our heart with you. Father, we ask that you would give us grace to trust you, to know that you answer in ways that are better than the answers that we want. Father, I pray that you would help us to love, to love you and to love others, that we would do unto others what we would want done to us. Father, give us the spirit of Christ. Help us for his name, for his glory. Amen. Amen. Praise team, we're gonna come and lead us in our final item.